Hi there, Guy Kilty here. Welcome to another episode of uh, Creative Forces. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening to the podcast so far and for all the great feedback so far. It's been brilliant to see the uh, numbers tick up on the stats and also to get uh, some lovely comments about people enjoying the interview. So thank you to everyone who's got involved and for listening. This episode's all about Charlie Lester. Charlie's an entrepreneur, journalist and dating industry expert. She created the massively successful 30 Dates blog uh, when she was working in the finance sector. As a result of that, she had a massive career change. She went on to become The Guardian's dating editor, created the Dating Awards covering the UK, Europe and the US. Now she's launched a league of her own, a club for female entrepreneurs. She's also head judge at the UK Blog Awards. So she does a lot of different things and she's a really interesting guest. It was lovely to talk to her. Uh, in the interview, she talks about how her entrepreneurial streak has come to the fore again and again throughout her life. She also talks about the massive impact that her parents had, as have had on her life and how they continue to do so. And also she talks about why she works best at night. I'd just like to start by asking you, I was just uh, reading uh, about what you're doing and I saw that you actually recently were involved in the Roller Derby, Roller Derby World Cup. <laughs> just tell me a bit about what exactly is that? How do I pronounce um, it, first of all? What well, is it? And how did you get involved in that? And you were competing, I think, for Rouma the Romanian team. So just tell me a bit about that. Okay, well, so to, to answer your first question, I think if you're British, it's roller derby. And if you're American, it's roller derby. Okay. Um, so, yeah, my mum was Romanian, which is how I qualify for Team Romania. Um, I So roller derby is a full contact sport. Um, it's a bit like rugby on roller skates without a ball. Um, basically, you score points by passing other players. And so you kind of tackle each other. You knock each other over to try and score points on each other. Um, it, it is brutal. Um, it's so brutal that I gave up playing about four and a half, five years ago because um, it does take up a lot of your time and it's and it and it, and it's physically is quite draining. Um, but I so I retired and then I came back out of retirement because Team Romania got into the World Cup and I thought, Do you know what, I'm never going to play international sport any other way. How cool is this? So I got back on skates about six months ago and then played in the World Cup in February. So just, just I mean, how brutal is it? What are the worst sort of injuries you've had from it? Well, I, I've actually been touching all wood. I've been quite quite lucky, but um, I've got friends who've broken their legs three times playing and still and still play. Um, you get a lot of broken collarbones, a lot of concussion. Um, we, we play with lots of safety gear on, so you play with a helmet on, elbow pads, knee pads, um, mouth guards. But I mean, I, I'm sitting here and I'm, I can feel the bruises all over my body because I played two games this weekend. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite harsh. Um, when it, and also because no one's heard of it, when you turn up to work covered in bruises and you're female, you do get some odd looks and, <laughs> and some questions as to whether your home life is okay. <laughs> How did the tournament go? Um, well, we were like the Jamaican Bob's play team. So normally, <laughs> um, normally you have 15 players in a team and you're normally, for the World Cup, you're allowed a squad of 20. But because there were so few players of, um, of Romanian um, origin, um, we had 10 players and then we actually had eight players because we had two injuries. <laughs> so I have never played so much in my life. Like it's, you rotate on, so you only have five players on track at any one time. But normally that means that you get like two minutes on, two minutes off or maybe two minutes on, four minutes off during a game. And I think I was playing about 95% of the game, which is cool. But yeah, I, I felt like I'd run about eight marathons by the end of the World Cup. And how did Team Romania finish? Thirty-seventh out of thirty-eight, so we went last. And <laughs> <laughs> um, it was funny though because everyone did definitely get behind us. They, they I mean, they genuinely saw us like the Jamaican bobsleigh team. Right. We had so much support because we had, you know, people could see how how many more times our players were rotating than the opposite team. <laughs> and we'd quite often be in the lead in the first half of the game, and then you know just get so knackered that we'd lose in the second half. So. Yeah, the, the audience are brilliant, and we we saw lots of people wearing our wearing our t-shirts and waving flags, which was quite cute. That must have been <laughs> nice. How did you get involved in that in the first place, then? Um, one of my best friends was playing for Team England, and I've always been sporty, so I do a lot of triathlon. Um, I've always done a lot of running, um, and, and basically, I'm one of those people that if someone's playing sport and they need an extra player, I will always sub in regardless of the sport. And she just said, "Look, 
I think you'll be good at this sport. It helps when you're tall. So I'm five eight, mm. and one of the skills is is covering as much track as possible. So if you're tall, you can very naturally do that by by just standing. <laughs> um, and so um, yeah, so she said, "Oh, come and try the sport." So I tried it and just loved it. Um, and then yeah, started playing probably about seven years ago. But then um, I just I I actually quit when um, I wrote a dating blog that went viral, yeah. and I quit because the the blog was just like taking up my life and I, it was kind of roller derby or the blog and so I thought well I'll see where the blog goes and then yeah and then it only got back on the skates last year right and so but you're back into it now you said you played two games at the weekend yeah yeah so um so I, I wasn't sure if I'd stay playing after the world cup because the world cup's every four years so I wasn't sure if I would want to stick around for the next world cup I just thought I'd do one world cup and then see see but I've had so much fun getting back on skates and um I think it's actually quite an, an a complimentary um sport compared to the other stuff that I do because I do a lot of triathlon it gets a bit boring when you're just running on your own or cycling on your own for hours so it's quite nice to play a team sport again we'll talk more about the the blog of course you mentioned there shortly but I just you'd mentioned the triathlons as well so that is that something you've done for a long time too no, I literally I started last. Well, well, actually, running I've done for a long time. So I think I did my first marathon when I was at university. Um, so I've done five marathons over the years. But um, I'd always wanted to do an Ironman, always, and um, and was just scared about the whole swimming outside thing until a few years ago. Um, so then I kind of did the swimming, and then I. I cycled Lands End to John O'Groats two years ago and realised, you know what, the bike side is not so bad. Um, so last April I did my first triathlon, so I did a sprint distance one. And then um, a few months later I did my first half Ironman. And I've now done two halves. I've got five lined up this year and I've got my first Ironman in August. Wow, so you're a bit of an addict now to the Ironmans. Or the Would training at least. Well, I think, John, you know, I'm, I'm an addict when it comes to challenges. I love challenges. And I've always wanted to do a full Ironman. And I know what I'm like. I'm quite rubbish at self, um, at, like, forcing myself to train if it's just me running around, you know. For, like, I can't do, like, a 20-mile 20 uh, 20 run on my own. It has to be, like, an actual competition to get me to wake up, turn up, and then finish it. So, um, so my approach to the Ironman has just been to schedule in as many events in the run-up to it so that I actually train properly. <laughs> yeah, there's something about, isn't there, having that... That date in the diary that you have to uh, you have to turn up for yeah and you can't and you can't slack it off you even if you know once you started you, can you imagine how embarrassing that would be like two miles in with all these people <laughs> cheering for you just be like oh, I don't know, I'm just not feeling it today I'm just gonna walk off so it just doesn't happen so yeah and um, that, that, that seems to be my approach to training you say that you love uh, taking on challenges um, what other challenges would you say that you've you've taken on you know throughout your your career so far as in business ones? Yeah, um, yeah. Or yeah. any, any. It could be anything. Um, well, so, okay, so I, I literally, I'm one of those people where if there's a mountain, I will climb it. So I've done some silly things over the years. I've, I've trekked to Everest Base Camp. I've done Kilimanjaro. I think I was quite young when I did that. But um, I travelled around the world on my own and um, and climbed Mount Aconcagua on my own, which is probably the most dangerous thing I've ever done in my life. Should I'm you have done that? No, it was out of season and I was carrying, basically, because I was traveling around the world on my own, I had no camping gear, so I had to hire it all. And um, and the stuff I hired was meant to be um, for four people. So I had a four-man tent, a four-person cooking setup. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I think I was, like, carrying my own body weight on my back, trying to climb a mountain on my own, <laughs> out of season. At one point, I was camping on my own at the side of the highway with all these massive lorries going between Chile and Argentina and just thinking to myself I'm actually going to get raped in my, in my sleep like genuinely it's the only time I've ever been that scared mm. and I've padlocked the inside of my tent as if that was going to do much um, if someone was going to try and attack me <laughs> but um yeah so I've done I've done a couple of silly things because when I see a mountain or a marathon or a race I'm like yeah I could do that um but I probably then apply that same logic to business mm. so um so uh, I came up with the dating awards idea simply because no one, no one in the space was running awards, and and I think I liked that challenge, that idea that okay, I've just had this idea, how far can I run with this? Mm. Um, so I went from literally not working in the dating space. I was writing a dating blog. Um, I knew quite a few of the players in the dating space had this idea and thought, you know what? Let me see what I can do with this. Um, and it and ended up being an international set of awards, which is quite cool. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the blog. I mean, just tell us about that. I know you'll have told this story many times, but you you were working in finance, is that right? And then you you yeah. set up uh, the blog when you were sort of urged to do so by a couple of friends, is that right? 
Yeah, so I, I was working in a bank, I um working for a bank, and um and I had just started online dating. I'd always been a bit put off online dating because it seemed a bit sad and a bit desperate, if I'm completely honest. Yeah. And um and I and I tried a dating site called Plenty of Fish and I had my first date was one of those really stereotypical ones where you turn up and the guy is like a foot shorter than he said he was going to be and <laughs> looks nothing like his photos and thought, oh God, this is awful. And then the second day I went on, um, I met this amazing guy and I thought, oh, I've met my future husband. And we went on a few more dates and it was before the term ghosting existed, but basically he ghosted me. And this and is I, this is Henley boy, isn't it? This is the Henley boy, the yeah. Henley boy, and yeah. so, um, and he was called Henley boy because um, he was from Henley. Mm. Um, and, I mean, and it was quite funny because there were people using the phrase Henley boy in the way that people use ghosting because <laughs> ghosting didn't exist at that point. So people would email me and be like, I've had a Henley boy. <laughs> um, and and he, you know, he's obviously fully aware of the blog and contacts me every now and again, which is quite funny. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, at the time he just disappeared. He just um, to the point where I remember Googling to see if a bus had hit him or something. Like genuinely, he went from calling me every night to just disappearing and just not replying to any messages um, and not turning up to dates that we planned. Um, and, and I realized that I was now going around work. I'd gone from bouncing around my work like a Cheshire cat to just so miserable. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, what? I've got three months of my 20s left. Um, it was, I think it was June of 2013. My birthday was at the end of the summer. And I was like, well, I could spend all summer moping over this guy that I met a couple of weeks ago, or I can try and turn this into something fun. And so kind of on a whim, I think it's like a Tuesday morning, I was a bit bored at work. I wrote a Facebook status to my friends just saying, um, look, I've got three months left of my, th of my 20s. If you guys send me on 30 blind dates, I'll try and fit them in between now and then. And my friends just embraced it. Like, I think it was shared about 50 times in the first hour. Um, they were literally off offering up their neighbors, their friends, their husbands, um, women. They just thought it was so funny. Like people just wanted to, you know, to watch me go on these dates. And um, and so on their on their advice, I set up a blog. Um, and the first night the blog, um, the first blog post I wrote that night, two thousand people read it because my my friends on Facebook shared it so much. Um, so suddenly I actually had to stick out the challenge. Mm. Um, <laughs> and as I said, I love a challenge anyway. So um, yeah, so I um, I spent the summer going on blind dates. I went to Madrid for a couple. I went out to New York. Um, the last one was the day before my 30th birthday, and I hiked up to the Hollywood sign in, in, in L.A. with an aspiring actor and just had the most amazing summer as a result. And then all the, the rest, the stuff that you do now, has all developed from there, hasn't it? So at what point did people start coming to you with, with offers of, of work, of you being able to comment or or deal, or be a, an expert in this, this dating field? Well, so it was quite early on because one thing I realized when I started writing about the dates is that people were asking me quite a lot of questions about other aspects of dating. So dating events, um, you know, dating apps. It was the, really the first summer that Tinder sort of appeared on the scene and I was one of the first people writing about Tinder. Um, and I started answering the questions and thought, well, maybe I should be reviewing these things. So I, I you know, and, and, I, and I'm one of those people who never does something you know, if I'm if I if I'm doing something, I do it properly. Like I properly throw myself in. So the nights that I wasn't going on dates, I started going into London and reviewing. And um, so I was living in Reading at the time. So I'd go into London specifically to review um, dating events. And I went to a Guardian event that was awful, like really, really bad. And I wrote a really honest review of why it was bad. Yeah, what was and bad about it? Um, well, they had about three men there and about three hundred women, um, <laughs> they, which was a bit not a great ratio. Not great when it's a straight event, no. no. And um, and then they um, they were just lots of things like they didn't really mingle us, and it felt a bit school disco like, and there were just some things that they could have done that would have made it a lot better. And I explained what they could have done, and um, and they got in touch with me, and I thought they and it, they got in touch with me very quickly. So they obviously had Google alerts set up, and um, and I thought they were going to ask me to take it down, and they actually they contacted me and said, do you know what? We've never done a dating event before. We really appreciated your your criticism. Will you come in and, and consult for us? Mm. Um, and so I went in and started consulting for Guardian Soulmates on a bit of an ad hoc basis, and they um, they had decided they wanted a, a, a blog for Guardian Soulmates to improve their own SEO. Um, and, and interestingly, the, at the Guardian, um, the um, the corporate side worked very differently to the editorial side. So they couldn't use um, editorial content from the Guardian. So they needed other content for their blog. Um, and so they said, "Well, you know, will you blog for us?" And within a few months, 
they'd said, well, actually, your blog's the most successful ones we've got on there and, and your tone fits with what we're trying to do. Do you want to edit our blog? Um, and at that point, they offered me basically a sum every month that would cover my rent and my living expenses mm. on top of, and I, you know, and I was working full time in banking. And I thought, you know what, why don't I just give this a go? I've got at least a six month contract with The Guardian. You know, I know I can cover, cover my costs. Where can I take this? So I left the bank, um, started working in the dating space and, and started having different companies in the dating space approaching me to consult on all kinds of stuff. Um, predominantly marketing and PR, I think, because they realized that I was quite good at doing that for myself. And they and, and there weren't many PR companies working in the dating space. So I started off doing some of that. And then off the back of the emails and the questions that I was being asked from the blog, um, I realized that there weren't any dating awards. There weren't, there weren't any industry awards where people could actually look at, at the results and say, oh, you know, maybe this, this app is for me. Maybe this website's actually doing good things for customers. Mm. So um, I think... It was it was less than a year after I'd started the blog when I came up with the idea for the dating awards, um, and then I set them up within a couple of weeks. Just you know, paid for a website and thought, well, let's just see see what I get, what what response I get to the website. Mm. Um, and I think because I'd already been introduced to a lot of key players in space, I could talk to these dating sites and say, well, would you enter these awards? Would you pay to enter these awards? Which categories would you like me to be focusing on so that your consumers can see that you're, you're, you know, you're focusing on the right things for them? Um, and so I built the awards quite quickly um, and then and managed to get the backing of the online um, dating association, which is the trade body. Mm. Um, and, you know, their members are all the big players. So eHarmony, Match.com, they're all, you know, Lovestock at the time. They were all members of the ODA. So once the ODA backed me, all of the big companies decided they were going to enter and make the event a success, which was brilliant. So did you ever imagine when you set out to do this, you were working in the bank, you thought, right, I'm going to go on these dates. And then you started to, you know, you decided to do the blog. Did you ever imagine it would end up with this total career change that that has happened? <laughs> Not remotely. And, it, and if I'm honest, if you'd have asked me early on where I thought it would go, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I love writing, you know, and, and I've written non I've written fiction books before. And I thought that if something was going to happen from the blog, it would be someone coming to me with a book deal to turn the blog into a book, which never happened. Um, <laughs> you know, and it was and it was interesting. I think it was a real lesson because I'm always I've always been a very proactive person. And actually, it was a really interesting lesson that sometimes the best opportunities do come to you, and you just have to be quite responsive to that and sort of change change your ideas and, and, and adapt what you're doing to the opportunities that come your way. So you mentioned the writing there. I mean, was it always, you say you wrote a couple of, of books. I mean, just tell me a bit about that. When did you write those books? And, and what sort of writing was it that you have sort of always wanted to do? Um, it, it's actually young adult um, fantasy fiction, okay. <laughs> funnily enough. So I, um, when I was traveling around the world, so I, you know, um, I have a bit of a, I suppose I've got a bit of a unique past, which probably explains my attitude to stuff. Um, when I was a teenager, I lost both my parents. They both died of cancer. Um, and so and so, dad died on my gap year. My mum died in my first term of uni. And so when I graduated university and I had a law degree, um, I graduated university, knew I didn't really want to go into the city um, and be a solicitor and uh, and so I looked at other opportunities and I um I realized that there was one area of law that I was interested in which was um which was the media bar and the odds on me becoming a media barrister were very similar to the odds on me becoming a blue peter presenter <laughs> um and so why, I thought, why was that sorry why is the odds so small um, because there's only two chambers in London and only one chambers each year would offer pupillage. So um, so they basically, you know, it was it was out of all these people. And, and bear in mind that even though I had a law degree from Cambridge, I didn't have the top first, you know, in my year. Mm. So I, it, I looked at it and I would have had to probably pay to do a master's, um, you know, and, and really fight to see if I could even get a pupillage with, with one of these chambers. And the pupillage isn't a guaranteed job. The pupillage is just sort of, a, a paid internship for a few years and then you and then you have to prove your worth to get the job mm. um and so yeah so I just I thought you know what uh, what am I interested in and I'd always wanted to be a blue piece presenter um right. so I so I went and did a master's in tv journalism instead um which was really fun and while I was doing the master's I started traveling around the world and filming myself doing challenges like jumping out of planes and climbing up mountains and so I decided to spend a year traveling around the world after my master's filming a, um, a showreel for Blue Peter. And it was while I was traveling around the world that I started writing. So I do these 
these journeys there across South America where I'd be on an overnight bus for something like 36 hours with nothing but my laptop. And I just started writing this, the story that I'd had, this idea that I had when I was at university. Um, and I started writing the book and it, you know, and it kind of flowed quite well, I think, because I was spending so much time on the laptop. Um, and I, um, I sent it off to an agent and I got, got the agent and they were really interested in that. And so I then started writing the sequel. Um, and yeah, so it was interesting because in the end, the, the traveling around the world didn't end up with me creating a showreel for Blue Peter, but I ended up having written two and a half, three books mm. um, during my time around the world and getting an agent. And they never went anywhere. I still have them, and I still love them. And at one point, I will publish them. Right. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, it was a really interesting experience. And I think it probably tapped into something that's a lot more me, actually. And I think, I think I am a bit of a born entrepreneur. I'm a. I am born for a portfolio career. Mm. I get bored quite easily. I like being in charge of what I'm doing. Um, I ended up. I didn't end up coming back after that year around the world. I ended up living in Whistler in Canada for a couple of years. And while I was there, I definitely had a couple of entrepreneurial projects. Um, not 100% sure how legal they were looking back because of my visa. <laughs> <laughs> what were those projects? Um, so I um, well, so I, I nannied, which was legal. That was fine. So um, so I was like um, an on-call nanny. So I was managing my time and choosing my work, which was brilliant. But um, I, in my first winter in Whistler, I realised that there was no um, first aid school in Whistler, and Whistler is a two-hour drive from Vancouver. And um, because obviously the entertainment industry is the biggest industry in, in a ski resort, um, all of the bars and pubs need all their staff to be trained up to. Um, with uh, first aid at work. And the only way they could do that was by sending their staff to Vancouver for two days, paying for their transport, paying for their accommodation, and then paying for the first aid training. And um, so in my first summer in between ski, ski seasons, I was doing my dive master in Honduras anyway. And I realized it would cost me 200 pounds while I was doing my dive master to qualify as a first aid instructor. So I would be qualified to give people first aid at work certificates. Um, so I then went back to Whistler and I would do in-house training for, um, for the, for the, all of the, um, the bars and pubs. And instead of them having to send their staff down, I would just train them up in the evenings and I, you know, and it would cost me, I think it's like 12 pounds to, 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 to get them certified. And I just bought like Rosassiani dolls and stuff. And so I, in my second season in Whistler, I literally skied every day or snowboarded every, every day. And then in the evenings I would be doing this really lucrative work. Um, which was brilliant, um, just because I'd spotted a, a gap in the market, I guess. So were you working as a ski instructor then, you mean, in Whistler? Um, uh, no, 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 no. So I was a nanny. I was, oh, uh, you, that's yeah. right, you were being a nanny, but then you were doing this as well. Yeah, so, so the skiing would just be me skiing. I so see. The whole right. point was I just wanted to be in a ski resort. So I would get to spend all day doing, you know, just enjoying myself. And then I would just, yeah, in the evenings. I, at first, I used to babysit in the evenings. So, I mean, that was a brilliant job anyway, because you'd end up in five-star hotels eating um, eating room service <laughs> and, you know, watching pay-per-view movies while someone's kids just slept in the bedroom. And all you had to do was be the responsible adult in the hotel room. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> do you know if I could, if I could just live out there with that life, I would still be doing it. But I missed people back home too much. Yeah, I was just going to say, what what brought you back to the UK then? I'm <laughs> um, just missing people. I was out there for about two and a half years, and I'd been travelling by that point for about three and a half years, and just thought, do you know what, I need to come home. I need to be an adult. <laughs> yeah. In that first year, how many places did you go to? Um, while I was travelling around the world. Yeah. Um, Oh, about 25 countries, I think. I, um, I've, I've always done a lot of traveling. My mum and dad met while my dad was traveling around the world. So that's why he met when he was traveling through. So he met her while he was traveling through Romania, um, which is why I have, I'm half Romanian. Um, and so I think that's always kind of traveling spirit has always been in my blood. And then, um, you know, I, I, the only reason I could afford to travel around the world was because when mum and dad died we had to sell the house and so I had this money that I didn't never expected to have mm. and thought well what's the best way to spend that money if mum and dad had had that money in their early 20s what would they have been doing and the answer was traveling so um so after my master's I planned this this route and um, I'd done a lot of Asia in my um while I was at university so I didn't do any of Asia this time I, I flew I think I did Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and I flew into Santiago and I spent eight months going all through South America and Central America and then up through America and Canada, finished in Canada, dumped my stuff, flew back home for two weeks and then flew back out to Whistler to start the ski season. Hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it was brilliant. I had a great time. <laughs> it sounds like it. I mean, you said as well before then that you were always been entrepreneurial, you think. You've always had that sort of streak in you. How... 
how early did that sort of show itself and how how did it show itself well, I can remember um, doing Young Enterprise at school, which I'm quite a big advocate of now. Um, I, so I, um, I was the CEO of our company, Sheepish, <laughs> and we, uh, we sold, so we were an all-girls school, and we sold calendars with photos of the sixth-form boys from the, twi- the school we were twins with <laughs> to the lowest to the lower years which I didn't know way we'd have been able to get away with that these days no, that, that probably, probably would be frowned upon these days wouldn't it we'd have ended up in the daily mail for sexism or something <laughs> <laughs> but um and we had um our two of our male teachers on the front cover um, and I'm a governor now at the school <laughs> right. and one of the teachers that was on the front cover is still teaching there and every now and again I'd bring the calendar out because it's just so funny <laughs> <laughs> so that was one so you did the calendars what what were any other sort of entrepreneurial things that you did I mean, I think that was probably the main one. And I think it really was, um, it was only when I went to Whistler that I actually started realising, hang on a minute, like this this is very much me. I mean, I was, I was, I was probably quite savvy with the nannying too. I got myself into a position where I was, um, I was, it was quite, it was quite a funny situation because no one ever checked whether I was any good with kids, but the, the snobbery <laughs> in this ski resort, they just loved saying, oh, the nanny went to Cambridge. Yep. So I would do quite well out of the bookings. But I think I also managed to get myself in a position where, uh, you know, I was the probably the top choice for the nanny, like, you know, for the, for the nanny pool. So I could pretty much call call the shots when it came to um when it came to which which jobs I had and what time of day I was working and which hotels I was working in. I mean, I love that. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think it was quite a nice lesson. And actually, it, it made me realise how much I enjoy working for myself and dictating my own timetable. And I've never been someone who keeps a particularly nine to five schedule. Like I work best at night. Um, I always do the university. Um, and I think I think that approach, I've, I've, you know, I, I still apply to, to business. I quite often spend my days doing stuff like sport and, you know, and, and sleeping. And then, and then it will get to about 10 o'clock at night and I'll suddenly, that's when I'm most productive. <laughs> How much do you think, um, you know, losing your parents at such a young age has shaped, I mean, you mentioned that they were the inspiration for you to go traveling initially, but how much do you think that, you know, losing them so early has shaped what you've done since in the, in the years since? Oh, I think it's been a massive influence on me. I have I have carpe diem tattooed on the inside of my wrist, and that really is the way I live my life. You know, um, I I think I try like both of them were in their early fifties when they died. They were both extremely healthy, um, as far as we thought. Um, you know, they, they, all these things that you get told not to do because they'll give you cancer. They didn't do any of those things. They didn't smoke. They didn't drink. They exercised regularly. Um, and I think it just made me very aware of my own mortality and kind of made me approach life in this way where I'm like, you know what, if I'm not enjoying it, then change something. Um, there is no point being stuck in a job that you don't enjoy. There is no point being stuck in a relationship that you don't, that, you know, that you, then you're not enjoying or it's not fulfilling. Mm. Um, so I think I, my approach to life has definitely always been to try and fill my life with as many adventures. You know, this is why I climb mountains and run marathons and have a, we you know, have about 18 challenges every year that I try and fulfill. But I kind of just, yeah, I think, I think just, it's just made me see this today. Um, and it's interesting because actually I, I've definitely followed in my dad's footsteps a lot without necessarily realizing my dad was an entrepreneur. I don't think he would, he would have been called that at the time, but my dad was always, he ran his own businesses and he always had all these different random business ideas. When we were kids, we lived in France one, one winter because my dad had come up with this computer program for ski schools and he was selling it to, to ski schools. So I think, I think that it's interesting looking back and actually being able to trace where I get some of the stuff I do from. Um, and I think one of the things about losing your parents early is you actually realize how much they live on in you in stuff that you do. Um, I've got a younger sister and both of us will do or say something and then the other one will go, yeah, that's, that's mum, that's dad, um, which is nice. And it was, it was, you know, it was why it was really nice actually to, to escape from Romania in February. Um, being like being half Romanian was something always something that I was quite um, ashamed, like not ashamed of, but maybe a bit ashamed of because growing up, I mean, I went to quite a posh public private primary school, mm. and um, and I always used to try and hide the fact that mum was was Romanian because she had such a broad accent and you don't want to be different. And mum and dad offered just the chance to learn Romanian when we were kids, and I was like, oh my god, I don't want to be different. I don't want to do that. And I can remember things like a, a boy phoning my house to ask me out and speaking to mum and leaving a message and then the next day telling me he'd left a message with the maid mm. because mum had this broad Romanian accent and so there was definitely this kind of snobbery around 
you know having an eastern european parent and mm. and 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 i think i mean it and it's still today you know there is this there is like romanians the way that romanians are treated in in britain is not amazing at the moment i don't think but it, even particularly then you know mum must have been one of the first romanians to come across when she came across in the 70s so i think at the time i was quite embarrassed to have this romanian parent and now i think it's really nice that i'm finally properly embracing that and you know post brexit i'm really proud to be half half european <laughs> even even when we leave um and it was really nice just to, to sort of really embrace that culture for a few weeks and when then um, the romanian team we hadn't met none of us had met each other and so we uh, before the before the games and so we went for a lot of meals and we went to um we went to a Ra- romanian restaurant and we ate food that i hadn't eaten since mama died which was really like it was just really nice and then um, they were all laughing at me because i have got some romanian so my i know a few words and it's it, I, I either know like stuff that you would say to a little child or really rude stuff because mum and dad would swear in Romanian so that me and my sister wouldn't swear at school. <laughs> and, and so they were just laughing when I was coming out with my Romanian vocabulary over dinner. Um, but yeah, and that was really nice. I think that was a kind of a bit of a testament to mum, which was nice um, because I probably in a lot of ways am a lot closer to my dad in my behaviour and in the stuff that I do. So it was quite nice to be like, okay, this is for mum. <laughs> is that what you mean by the entrepreneurial side of things? Um, entrepreneurial side of things and just probably attitude I think me and, me and dad were very similar um, we were also very close when I was growing up he was definitely the parent I was closer to um, my dad was really heavily involved in scouting and I was um, very heavily involved in scouting and guiding up until pretty much my late 20s mm. um, and um, and he, he got me into cricket when I was really young and um, and I played cricket all the way well, I, so I returned to cricket I played cricket until I was about 14 and then I discovered boys and part time jobs <laughs> and, and, and also realised that I was one of the very few straight women playing cricket at that right. time um, and so I left cricket when I was at 14 15 and then when I got to Cambridge and and they had the freshers fair I thought well why don't I see about the university cricket team and so I ended up playing at Lords three times for Cambridge and captaining at Lords um, and that was kind of I suppose that was my little hat, hat off to dad I remember standing on the boundary the morning of the game like captained Cambridge at Lords and just thinking well this is for dad so actually it's quite nice to do something similar for mum I guess. Was was he a big cricket fan? Yeah, though it was interesting because I think I kind of got him back into cricket, and and actually this is really funny looking back. The reason I really liked cricket it was the summer of two thousand no nineteen ninety three sorry, and um, and Graham Thorpe was playing his debut for England and he was really hot and I used to serve <laughs> at him on the television so I got into this sport. I mean, it's really unfeminist, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that's not but what you normally hear about cricket either. It's normally others like football or something, but not cricket. <laughs> It's really funny, isn't it? And it's, what's funny now is looking at him now and thinking, yeah, I definitely wouldn't fancy him now. <laughs> so what were you? Were you batsman, bowler? But, not batsman, but batter, bowler? Um, so when I so actually I played county for quite a few years mm. and I was wicketkeeper for county and a, a middle order batsman and then I got to Cambridge and I opened the batting and the bowling right. which possibly says something about the level of the cricket <laughs> but um but yeah no no it was really fun so um it was really interesting actually because I lived in such a feminist bubble so the school I went to was super feminist we never thought about boys as being any different to us I, I you know it, they were a competitor so we were encouraged right you're going to get A's at GCSE, A's at A level, you know, you're just going to beat everyone. And then I got to Cambridge and it was the first time that I'd ever really been treated differently because I was a girl. And I saw it particularly when I was playing cricket. Um, One of my first varsity games, um, a man came down from the crowd and tried to show me how to hold my bat. (laughs) Um, and I think at that point I'd been playing county cricket for like 15 years. Um, and then he asked me to demonstrate my best stroke for him. And I think at that point I just turned to him and said, would, would you be saying this to any of the men on the other pitch? Mm. Um, and then, you know, and there, and there were definitely a few incidents too, with, with actually even with the, there was an incident with the MCC president where um, I was told that women should be seen and not heard. Um, so there were definitely things like that where I, I think, I think I'd probably been quite sheltered and hadn't realised actually the misogyny that still existed in the world and that there was, you know, that that we're not equal everywhere, which was a shame. Do you feel like things have moved on a bit since then in terms of professional women's sport or or amateur women's sport too? Um, I think yes and no. I still think there's there's a lot of ground to cover. I mean, you look at how much women and men get paid and, and, you know, there are arguments about viewership and things like that. But I think... I think it needs to start grassroots up, um, and and it, and and it, you know definitely there are there are changes being made. I'm I, from what I see at the MCC, I you know call me a cynic, but I do still feel like 
certain things are only been doing being done for show mm. um when i when i was nine and i loved cricket and i wanted to join a cricket club cricket supporters club i wasn't allowed to join middlesex's supporters club because it was the mcc and i didn't have a a penis you know and that was literally as a nine-year-old child i was told you can't be a member of this supporters club so i went so i went and joined the oval um, and have been a surrey supporter ever since and i think that sticks in my throat still whenever i see anything that's being done pro women by some of these clubs i think well how many of you were there you know less than it's you know 25 years ago how, how many how many of people are still there who, who who had those beliefs and thought it was absolutely fine to tell a little girl that she couldn't join a club because she had different genitalia mm. um so i think yeah i mean maybe i'm a little bit jaded <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um but it's i mean it's interesting because actually with with the roller derby it's a complete flip side mm. because it's um because it's so feminist i mean super super feminist and it's also it was it's there are a lot fewer men that play it than women it was the, the a few years ago it was the largest growing women's sport in the world um and so yeah so it's it's a very different um, yeah, a, a, a kind of a very different sporting environment, I guess. Was it ever something that you wanted to try and do professionally to play sport? No, no, no. I, I do. Do you know? If I'm completely honest, I'm not that great at sport at all. Like I'm a team player. I mm. get in teams because I'm a good team player, and I and I'm quite often captain because I'm a rallier rather than I'm the best player on the team. I, mm. I'm normally like the mediocre person in the team. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that you carry that sort of philosophy and those? qualities on into to what you do now um i don't know i think i think um probably actually i, I think i'm not too I, I think it's interesting i think i changed my attitude to um to competitiveness actually and i think that that was something i learned at cambridge i think i was always really competitive as a child and mm. um, and i always wanted to be the best particularly um with things like academia, I was always top of the class. And if I got 98%, I would be kicking myself. It never came from my parents. It always came from me. I would be such a perfectionist. And then I got to Cambridge and because of the circumstances of my parents, um, I think the first term, um, by the end, because, so mum died my Christmas, Christmas holidays at the first term. And by the time it came to exams, I had to sit down with tutors and they said, look, to be honest, we don't think you're even going to get a third it's fine. You'll go through to second year. We know about your circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I think actually that was, you know, that was the first time in my life I'd been told that I was going to be getting anything other than the best. And it just actually really re- made me reframe stuff and actually appreciate what's important. And I think I changed from being a perfectionist to, um, or to being, from, I changed from being competitive to just trying to be the best that I can. Um, and I think that that was a really healthy attitude, particularly in a place like Cambridge where everyone's is amazing um, and you're never going to be the best at everything you do by any stretch um, and I think that that has then made me I suppose I made me more of a team player made me like just made me appreciate where my role is in a team and definitely made me you know see others not as competitors but try and this idea that you know you raise up the people around you um, and that you know that kind of was it the rising tide raises all boats kind mm. of concept I think I think that's a nice way to think just let that siren go past there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's sorry. all right. But, um, Whatever's happening in South Kent. <laughs> yeah, something's happening. Um, do, did you ever think of, of quitting Cambridge at that point? Obviously, you know, a huge event, two huge events in reality happened in your life, quick succession at that time when you were, you know, at Cambridge. Did you ever, did you consider quitting at that point or, or did it drive you on? No, I definitely didn't consider quitting. I mean, for a start... Cambridge had been something I'd been aiming at probably since I was about 12. I And again, it just came from me. I just decided I wanted to go to Cambridge University. And I can remember saying it really early on to my parents. Um, but I think also the, the thing about university was no one's parents were there. So actually, uni was this little bubble where the, you know, the real world didn't necessarily exist because no one else had their parents there. And OK, yeah, they might ring them at, you know, at the end of the night and they might pop up mm. for the weekend. But for the most part, part it didn't um I didn't I, I didn't feel different um I did notice differences I, I think I definitely became quite cynical and jaded it's quite hard to have a conversation with another 19 year old who is you know having a tantrum because this boy has only sent two exes at the end of a text message and thinks her world's ending as a result and you're like okay in the grand scheme of things this is not a problem <laughs> yeah. so I probably probably became quite old for my years while I was there and um, and definitely didn't have the typical 
um, student experience by any stretch. Um, looking back, and I've had conversations with friends who, you know, who've said, why didn't you say anything? But at the time, you know, you kind of internalize a lot of stuff, particularly because you know other people won't understand. And I can remember my, um, so basically the, my, the money from the house went into a trust that my uncle controlled, mm. um, and I didn't have full access to it till I was 21. And my uncle was not great with this and thought that um, that me and my sister would be able to live off, I think it was £400 a month. Whatever it was, it was just not a livable amount of money. Mm. And so I basically funded my way through university, maxing out my credit card, and then I would all get, you know, putting everything on credit card, and then I didn't have any cash to pay off the minimum balance. So then I would have to withdraw the cash from the credit card to pay off the minimum balance, which anyone who knows anything about credit cards, that's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. And it just... And it, and it like looking back as an adult, I am so frustrated at my uncle, who me and my sister don't speak to, um, but I'm so frustrated the way he managed that because we had all this money from this house sitting in the account that we couldn't touch, and both of us were just running up debt trying to live our lives. Um, it probably taught me some lessons about money, but not necessarily lessons I needed to learn in that way. Um, but yeah, so I had, I, you know, I did have definitely have a uni- I had an an abnormal university experience. Mm. How did you get out of that situation with the credit cards? Because by the sounds of it, that would have just kept up, kept on building up your credit cards, um, your, your negative balance. Um, well, so when I was twenty-one, the the trust fund got released into my into my care, okay. and I and I then had half half the house worth of money that I could pay right, off my so debt you could with. Pay it off. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's really it's really sad. God knows how much I wrapped up in debt that I didn't need to, and mm. interest rates and things. But yeah, <laughs> you learn lessons in life. You mentioned then that some of your friends from university said, "Why didn't you say anything?" Did you did you deliberately not say thing, anything to to some to a lot of people about your parents? Um, I think I talked about. Well, I I'm a, I probably talked a bit about my parents. People knew knew that my parents had died. Mm. Um. And, and if I'm completely honest, people crap because you're, when you're 19, you don't know what to say to someone who's just been orphaned. Yeah. And quite often people would just say nothing because they just would feel awkward. So, so I, don't, I don't remember talking too much about mum and dad dying to people at university. And, I, you know, the college were brilliant and the tutors would talk to me about it and they'd keep an eye on me. Um, and the nature of Cambridge, I think I was very lucky to have been in an environment like that because I remember things like the bath staff looking out for me and the the bedder who changed my, my bedding and, and my bin would report back that I wasn't staying in bed all day and stuff. And they was you know, they were they looked after me definitely in that respect. But um I think with the money stuff, it was the money stuff and probably because I thought I was surrounded by really rich people who didn't have these money problems. And I think it was interesting because actually the the person I ended up chatting to about this very recently um he had quite a, a unique situation too his um he was nigerian his dad was put into prison his dad was like quite high up in the nigerian government and had gone into prison and all their assets had been frozen so he was doing a really similar thing to me but he was like paying for his brother's boarding school on his credit card <laughs> and um and we just had this conversation where we were like oh my god the pair of us were in such a similar weird situation but neither of us told anyone because you just felt embarrassed and you didn't want to admit that you had no money and that you were having to juggle all these you know all these finances and, and having to juggle with problems that no 19 or 20 year old should have to deal with um but i think it's that thing isn't it with age where you just realize the older you get the more comfortable you get about talking about problems and talking about issues whereas when you know when you're a teenager you just think it's a sign of weakness to, to admit that something's wrong yeah uh, just to just to fast forward slightly then you mentioned uh, when you finished in Whistler you then went into banking so how did you end up then going from Whistler coming back to the UK but then ending up in in the banking sector and a friend was recruiting so I came back from um, it, was, it was banking I was contracting for the bank which was um, kind of very high salary, very uh, low commitment stuff, which suited me to the ground because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I had a law degree from Cambridge. I had a journalism master's. Mm. Um, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do work-wise. And she just came to me and said, look, you know, it's minimum of three months. You know, it's, I think it's starting when it was like £150 a day, which was brilliant because I'd racked up a fair bit of debt while I was skiing <laughs> and thought, yeah, okay, all right, I'll go and do that and then I'll work out what I want to do. And then I, I ended up staying there for three years because every time I would go to leave, they'd go, okay, do you want £50 more a day? <laughs> <laughs> so what but was I, the actual uh, work you were doing there? Um, so I was working in compliance. So um, I worked for Lloyd's, for, I, I contracted for Lloyd's um, on, on the PPI project. So a lot of what I was doing was working out, it was actually, it was quite interesting because it did actually use my law degree. It was working out um, whether whether claims were actually eligible, um, whether 
people should have been given the PPI in the first place. Um, so I got to do quite a lot of precedent setting and things. It's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, it was every now and again, I'd be like, mm, this isn't really where I saw my life going. Maybe I should go and try something else. And they'd be like, okay, 50 pounds more. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, were you, were you, would you have been quite happy doing that? Do you think for a few years or was it always destined that you would find your own way somewhere else? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how, how much how much how much later I would have jumped my best friend I got her a job there and um, maybe six months after I left and she still works there mm. <laughs> so so maybe I would have ended up staying there it was it was very lucrative work and it was the kind of work that you could leave at home at the end uh, sorry you could leave at work at the end of the day which is quite rare I think mm. I guess that's not the case now for you no uh, no no I, <laughs> I live and breathe my job but I do enjoy it. I mean I think that's so I do it you know I do a lot of um a lot of talks for female entrepreneurs we do we give a lot of advice to, to entrepreneurs and one of the things I say is that you need to be doing something that you're passionate about because you are going to live and breathe this There's, it's very hard to set up a company and then go oh, yeah I'm only going to do it a couple of days a week yeah. um <laughs> so tell me a bit about um a league of her own then that's the thing that the 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 organization that you've set up more recently isn't it so tell me about how that came about and what exactly it does um okay so so a league of her own is um an online learning platform and basically a support group to try and encourage um either women who have a business idea and don't know how to get started or women in their early years of business they so probably their first three years um, and the reason that it came about um Caroline Breeley is my co-founder. She is a matchmaker. She entered the awards the very first year and won matchmaker of the year. And that's how we met. Um, she was actually the very first person to email me when I set up the awards because she actually applied to be a judge. And I was like, no, you need to enter, please. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, she won. And then it actually did end up on the judging panel. And as a result of that, we, we you know, grew, grew as friends. Um, the, there's a lot of men in the dating industry, which you wouldn't necessarily think because all the matchmakers are women, but a lot of the people who, who run the, the, the online sites and apps are men. And so um, we actually ended up kind of unofficially becoming peer mentors um, together with two other women in the dating space. And we'd have regular dinners and we just, because we were all working on our own, we just discussed the problems we were having and stuff. And one of the things that we recognized was that both of us had had very similar issues when we first started up our businesses. So neither of us had known women who started businesses. Um, we didn't have, you know, real role models. Yes, Karen Brady and Michelle Moan were people we knew of, but they're both millionaires. And, you know, we didn't really know anyone that was just worth running a small or medium-sized business that was female. Um, and, and there were just things that, you know, we really struggled with that actually, if some, if we'd known someone who had taken those steps already, they would have been so much easier so things like setting up a business with hmrc it costs 15 pounds and it takes five minutes but if you go to an accountant or a lawyer they will try and charge you 200 pounds to fill in a form for you and it's just having that business savvy or that experience to know actually that's something you can easily do yourself and you don't need to pay for someone to do that for you um, and so we had those conversations quite often and we've done um, some other projects together. We've, um, Carol- so Caroline runs something called the Matchmaker Academy where she teaches people to become matchmakers um, and I'd done some filming for her on that and then we we co- collaborated on a project for dating experts. So we'd already filmed trainings together and we'd worked on things like you know online sites and we knew that we worked well together. We've both got probably quite a similar attitude to work but also... Um, we've got complementary skills and it, you know, the running, the running joke is that she's good, she's good, she's good cop and I'm bad cop. Um, I, I'm the one that gets wheeled in whenever we talk about money or anything awkward. I always have, I'm the one that always has to have the awkward conversations. Why do you think um, it's that way around? Oh, it's, I, I'm just, she hates it. She absolutely hates it. I don't particularly enjoy it, but I am, I'm definitely the, the stricter one of the two of us. Um, <laughs> And, and and it's so funny because um, she tells me off because my emails are so curt, but I'm so abrupt in email because I'm normally doing like three things at once. So she does our email newsletters because she's so friendly and bubbly over email. And I'm a bubbly person. I'm just obviously not bubbly on email. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've worked out our skills and, and where we're, we're better at things. Um, so I think we, we decided at the start of last year that we wanted to work on this project. Um, Caroline had kind of come up with concepts and I came up with the name. Um, and then we just um, we spent almost a year filming interviews with incredible women. So the idea is um, it's an online learning platform. So each month we, we tackle a different area of business, whether it's um, visibility in business, so things like public speaking or different aspects of social media or looking for investment or doing your own podcast. So each month we'll, we'll do a different module. 
And we film an hour-long tutorial video, which is us talking over PowerPoint slides. But then we also have three interviews with experts. So we spent a year filming these expert interviews and just meeting some incredible women because we really wanted it to be about the women and not just about me and Caroline. You know, yes, me and Caroline run our own businesses, but we didn't want to present ourselves as the only role models to mm -hmm. women because the whole point is to show that there are loads of women who run their own businesses and they come in all shapes and sizes and their businesses come in all shapes and sizes. Um, so we, we did a lot of kind of pre-prep before launch and then we launched in November of last year. Um, and the idea is that people join as members. It's a monthly subscription. Um, each month they get access to a new, new, a new subject. Mm -hmm. So they've got a library full of modules that they can do at their own, at their own pace. Um, and we will focus on that module that month. So we'll do things like have live Q and A's with experts in our Facebook group. And um, there are workbooks and FAQ sheets. We'll run events based on that subject that month. Um, and then each week we have a Facebook group where people can find peer mentors, can ask us questions, can ask other people questions, can do things like A-B test a logo with a group of people who don't know them and will be honest. Um, but then in that group, we do a, um, a weekly business challenge. So it's always linked to the topic. So where the topic is visibility this, this month, hmm. this week's this week's business challenge has been um, entering awards. And we've we've done a load of um, advice on entering awards and, you know, and, and given them some links to some uh, business awards that are open at the moment that, that have startup categories in them. So um, the idea is just to kind of try and support and encourage as many women as possible to start up their businesses, because mm. sadly, the numbers are still really low as to how many women go into business on their own. Which women have inspired you the most of the ones that you've met, whether it's for, through the interviews or ones that have actually been using the service? Which are the ones that you've you've really sat up and taken notes of? Um, so I loved interviewing Susie Chan. She's um, she's an ultra um, marathon runner. Um, and she was just incredible. And, you know, and it was it was a bit of a different interview because it wasn't so much on business. We were doing motivation that month and, and just her whole attitude to running. There were so many parallels between running and business that you wouldn't necessarily realize. And it was it was it was really I really enjoyed talking to her because she she went from never having run like not even having done a five mile run in her late thirties to the second run she did was the Marathon de Saab, which is like four days through the desert, hundreds of miles. I and mean, it was just incredible. So listening to her journey, I found really inspirational. And I think probably that uh, part of that is because I do love sport and I, I it was kind of joining two of the things that I'm most passionate about. And um, so that one was really interesting. In terms of members, um, we've got a girl called um, Emma from Immerse Studios, and she um, created a, um, a card game for kids, um, which is called Quirk. And it's just been really interesting, because ne I've never done a product before, so it's really interesting learning from her and seeing the product side of stuff. Um, and she actually, um, we're gonna, we're gonna co uh, collaborate with her later this year and create a version of Quirk specifically designed at little girls to encourage them to become entrepreneurs or to um, to pursue careers that are mainly male dominated so that'd be mm. quite fun sounds good I'd just like to ask you a little bit as well about the whole the dating industry because obviously it's changed massively hasn't it over the last 10 20 years I mean where where's it going to go next what's the next big innovation in the dating industry I, honestly, I'm not really sure because I feel like people feel like there has to be a massive innovation and I don't necessarily think there needs to be. But I think people are already sick of dating apps, which is really sad because it, they've not been around for very long. But people are abusing that system so much that, you know, it, it's, it's really sad. I mean, and I'm single and I find this really depressing when you when you go on a dating app and what used to be brilliant a few years ago, you know, that the way that the way that dating apps work is that they take away that awkwardness of working out someone fancies you or not, because the way they're set up is that only people who've said they're attracted to you can talk to you, which is brilliant. But the the problem is now that because they're free to sign up to, or a lot of them are free to sign up to, that people who sign up to them aren't always single, and they're just on there for an ego boost, and they mm. just want to know, oh, look at all these people who fancy me, and it, if the system is being abused by people who are not single, and they're making it rubbish for singletons, um, <laughs> hmm. so so I think it's a shame because I think actually the the way that the dating apps, you know, this recent innovation is so good and so spot on, 
but because it's not being used properly, it's really ruining the experience for everyone. And, and it's meaning that we need to have like a new innovation. And I don't think we really do yet. And then, and, and then I think because of the way that stuff is moving, you know, the tech is all moving to AI and to virtual reality. And people are like, oh, well, how can we do this in dating? Do you really want to go on a date with a VR mask on? Like, you know, <laughs> and, and, and meet someone that you can't actually touch. I just mm. think it's a bit odd. But, but I think because people feel pressured into, you know, into always looking forward and doing new stuff, I, those will definitely be the next innovations. I just don't know how popular they'll actually be. Mm. You mentioned that you're single again. Are you ever tempted to uh, do the blog again, do another 30 days? <laughs> 35 before 35 yeah. um honestly it's like it's it's a blessing and a curse right because that blog changed my career and mm. I definitely I wouldn't you know I wouldn't change what I'm doing for the world like I love my life at the moment it's so much fun but if you google my name dating expert comes up <laughs> so it's so hard to go on a date and I and I've gone on dates where I just um told the person I was a journalist rather than and I didn't tell them my surname mm. because I am so googleable because I've got quite a unique unique name yeah. and um, and they still found me and I've had dates where like an hour in the guy goes oh by the way I've googled you and I've read your entire blog are you gonna be <laughs> writing about this date and I'm like no no just let me tell you about myself I'm a lot more interesting if I tell you in person <laughs> so it's a blessing and a curse yeah definitely <laughs> Okay, I'd like to finish, Charlie, uh, just by asking you three uh, questions that I'm asking everyone who's uh, coming on uh, the Creative Forces uh, podcast. The first one, you touched on it slightly earlier. Uh, it's about whether you have a routine that allows you to be the most productive that you can be uh, in your work and everything. I think you mentioned that you're most productive in the evening uh, earlier yeah. on. Is that the case? And if so, what are the sort of circumstances that, that gets you in the, the best frame of mind to be as productive as possible? So I don't know if this is a great answer, but it's definitely a true answer. I am best when I have not done any work all day and I have scared myself into working because <laughs> then I'm really efficient. I think I have a whole day to work. So, so my best days are the ones I've been really busy today, not been able to sit down and work and then actually have to then compact all my work into a few hours in the evening. Um, if I have too much time, I definitely dawdle. Um, but I, and I, and I think it's interesting because because I work best with TV or in the background too, which sounds really awful and lazy. And when I tell my friends how much Netflix I've watched, they look at me in horror. <laughs> but I've always done that. Like when I was at uni, I used to have um, TV running in the background when I wrote essays. So I think I like, I, I, I'm not very good with silence. I like having some noise. And so the ideal surroundings for me are those kind of no-brainer TV shows where you, you know, you can get the gist of it. With, with only paying attention at once every five minutes because if it's like a murder thriller or something like that and I'm missing vital clues then it's awful I, I my ex-boyfriend used to get so angry at me because I'd be sitting there working watching tv and then I'd turn to him and be like so what's going on and he'd be like watch the tv show I shouldn't be having to explain the whole thing to you is there an example of the perfect show that should be that can be on in the background that for, for you to be the best to do the that's, that's the most sort of appropriate for just looking up every five minutes Oh, probably something like first dates where I don't really care too much what's going on. <laughs> I think if I care too much about the TV show, then 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 I'll I'll concentrate on the TV show and not what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, second question: When you look back over everything that you've done, and this can be you know whether at university, whether you were travelling, when you were in uh, you know in banking, or whether it's anything in the new career, what is the one or yeah, what's the one thing that you look back on? when you look back at it all and, and you feel sort of most proud of, it doesn't have to be about money or about, you know, a big achievement, but what's the one thing that you feel most proud of that you've, that you've done throughout your, your life? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a big oh, question. That is a big question. Oh, let's have a think. I, that is, it's a really tricky question, I think. Um, I, I think as an overarching thing, genuinely, I am, I'm I'm genuinely proud that I have become a well-rounded, I think, um, and approachable and normal human being in spite of what happened losing my parents because, you know, I didn't spiral into like depression or anything like that and there are lots of ways I could have gone and I could have I could have quit uni and I could have kind of thrown my life away and just dwelled on that and that would have been perfectly acceptable given the circumstances. But I think I think probably the, the bit I'm proud of is that I am me. And if I look back at the person I was before mum and dad died, this is who I was going to be anyway. It's probably a bit more of an amplified version of me, but I've been really true to myself and true to my roots. So I guess as an overarching thing, that's what I'm proud of. You know, 
the person that goes and do, does these random challenges and climbs mountains and travels around the world on her own and sets mm. up businesses on a whim, that <laughs> is who I probably was going to be even before I lost mum and dad. So I'm, I'm, uh, I think I'm proud of the fact that I think they would recognize me if they saw me today because, you know, it's 15 mm. years since they died. Mm. So it's almost half my life now. Okay, and final question. This can be anything, again, in terms of, it could be a book or a TV show, like you mentioned, or it could be anything that you're into. So what are you into right now? What are you watching or reading or listening to? It could be music or podcasts or whatever. What are you really into right now? Oh, okay. Um, so I read a lot. I am, I am a big reader. Um, the, the book I've most recently loved, I really enjoyed reading The Power of Habit. Um, as a non-fiction book I thought that was really really good um, and whenever anyone asks me to recommend a business book that's what I tell them to read um, I love murder thrillers as, uh, um, and, I, and I listen to quite a few as audiobooks when I'm driving mm. any particular um, authors? Do you know what? I, well, I want to say B.A. Paris because her first two books were amazing, but I just finished her third book and it was awful. So just don't read that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> read, read, read the other two and they're really, really good. Um, and, I, and I know it's quite a cliche, but I really enjoyed This American Life. I just think it's such a good po podcast. Mm. That's like my default. If, if I'm ever stuck in a traffic jam and I want something to cheer me up and that actually kind of feels like I'm exercising my brain then, then I'll listen to that but I think um, the last couple of years I've definitely tried to read more and listen to more podcasts and it, and it is amazing I think the more you exercise your brain the more creative you become and the more ideas you have because you're just exposing yourself to so many more sources Charlie it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you very much for coming on the, the podcast thank you for having me <laughs>